For the lecture portion of this evening, I want to introduce uh, our speaker, Dr. Timothy Keller. Dr. Keller was born and raised in Pennsylvania, and in 1989, he started Redeemer Presbyterian Church here in Manhattan with his wife, Kathy, and their three sons. He's the author of multiple book publications, but is best known for his New York Times bestseller, The Reason for God and Making Sense of God. Um, we've been sharing fun facts about Tim every week, and this week, fun fact is if you ask him what his favorite movie is, he actually doesn't have a favorite movie, but he has a lot of favorite scenes from movies, and he shared several with me. One is from the movie Black Stallion, the part, so lots of spoiler alerts coming your way. Um, Black Stallion, where the shipwrecked boy and the shipwrecked horse find each other and ride off together. And the movie Hook, when Peter Pan realizes who he is and flies off into the sun. And finally, the movie Iron Giant, when the giant sacrifices himself to save the town and is resurrected. And so those are some of his favorite scenes. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Timothy Keller. Now you don't have to see any of the movies. You know how they all come out. I'm sorry about that. Um, so we're in a series that's, uh, uh, and everything I'm saying in these series actually assumes the first talk, which you may or may not have heard. But there I basically said this, and that is that since you, you can't totally demonstrably prove that there's no God, you also can't totally demonstrably prove that there is a God, which means if you don't believe there's a God, if you're a, uh, a secular person, secularism is not just the absence of beliefs, it's the presence of, a, of an alternate set of beliefs. Uh, in other words, uh, a secularism is, uh, includes beliefs in things like uh, how rationality works and uh, the, the nature of the material world and moral values and human purpose. It's, it's a whole set of beliefs. And no one, no, no, no one set of beliefs about ultimate reality can be demonstrably proven. But that doesn't mean that you can't weigh them against each other. That doesn't mean you can't compare them. Uh, and that's what we're doing in this series. So, for example, you can compare sets of beliefs as to which is most consistent with our experience. In other words, which of them are the most livable and fit our experience of things. You can also compare them as to which fits the evidence. Uh, even though you can't demonstrably prove any one religion or one set of beliefs about the world, uh, but there are, although, a lot of different arguments and their sets of evidence. So where's, where are the strongest arguments? Where's the strongest evidence? And then, so <clears throat> you can judge them on whether they're consistent with experience, you can judge whether they're consistent with evidence, and thirdly, you can judge them with whether they're consistent with themselves. In other words, are they internally consistent, or do you find one set of, in one set of beliefs, or trying to live one set of beliefs, you have to keep smuggling values in from another set? So what we're doing in this uh, stretch of the series is we're looking more, more at experience. We're looking and asking the questions about how livable are these various sets of beliefs. Because everybody, in order to live, needs certain things. You need, uh, you need a, a satisfaction in life that, that is there regardless of the ups and downs of circumstances. You need a meaning in life that can handle suffering. You need uh, a basis for making moral judgments and working for justice that doesn't turn you into an oppressor yourself. You need hope for the future, and you need an identity that can, uh, a sense of self and sense of worth that can handle the ups and downs of your own performance. 
So you can't live without those things. And every set of beliefs tries to give you those things. And the question is, how well do they do that? How well does the set of beliefs that you have right now about life and about the universe, how well does your set of beliefs give you those things? And of course, I'm here, I'm representing the Christian faith, and every week I'm trying to be fair to all, uh, but I also am here to show you that I believe that Christianity has unequaled resources to give you those things. Now tonight we're going to talk about identity. Is this up there? Yeah. In some ways, identity is at the core of our culture. I mean, every day, in every way, our culture is saying, be true to yourself and love yourself and value yourself. But even though our culture is obsessed almost with identity, every culture, every culture has to give its members a way of forming an identity, which is giving your, everybody has to have a sense of self and a sense of worth. You have to have some idea of who you are. You have to have some idea of what your self-worth is, and otherwise you can't live. So every culture gives you that in one way or another. And so what we're gonna do tonight is try to compare how does our culture help you form an identity? Uh, how is it different than the way other cultures do it? And what does Christianity have to offer? So let's start this way. Let's, let's talk about two basic kinds of identity out there. Uh, I'm gonna use, and every so often I'll refer to this man, Charles Taylor, who wrote, uh, he's a Canadian philosopher, who wrote a book, Sources of the Self, subtitle, uh, The Making of the Modern Identity. And what he does is he traces out a history of several centuries, quite a few centuries, in which in the Western world, we move from what we can call, for lack of a better term, a traditional identity to today's modern identity. And it's, so I wanna contrast traditional with modern identity because even though in the West, we've shed the traditional identity and uh, our culture has, it offers its members a modern identity, the fact is that in most of the rest of the world, in the non-Western part of the world, traditional identity is still the way those cultures uh, give people a sense of self and worth. So if you or your family is from uh, Africa or Asia or Latin America, you come from uh, cultures where even today you have traditional identity, not modern identity. Now let me explain what those are. Let's just spend some time, I'm taking this from Charles Taylor. Uh, traditional identity is outside in. Modern identity is inside out. Traditional identity works like this. You go outside to find the truth, capital T. Could be God, could be some moral tradition, could be family. I mean, every, every culture is somewhat different. But all cultures that have a traditional identity say, first you go outside to find the truth, then you come inside and you realign your feelings and your life to fit the truth. So for example, if you say the truth is thou shalt not commit adultery, but inside I feel like I would like to commit adultery, you don't. You align your feelings with the truth. So it's outside in, go out to find the truth, come in to rearrange your life, and your self-worth is bestowed on you usually by your family or your community. Your self-worth is bestowed on you if, you, if, the, if your community or your family sees you sublimating your self-interest for the greater good then they call you an honorable person or a good person and they bestow self-worth on you, okay? So go out to get the truth, come in to align your life with it, and then your community bestows honor on you and self-worth. Modern identity is exactly the opposite. You first go inside 
and decide who you want to be. You go inside to find the truth. You go inside to decide what is right or wrong. And then you come outside and you demand that everybody else adapt their feelings to you and accommodate you and your identity, who you are. And in the modern identity, no one has the right to tell you your self-worth. No one, you might say, is your validator except you. Only you can decide who you are. Only you can decide what is right or wrong for you. So you don't give your family or anybody else the right to tell you who you are. You validate yourself. See? So there they are. The modern identity outside, in, truth out there, adapt my feelings to it, and my community tells me I'm a person of self-worth. The modern identity, I go inside to find the truth, and I come out and demand that everyone accommodate me, and then I validate myself. Now, the reason I'm, let me give you a couple of examples. When cultures tell you how to get an identity and how to feel good about yourself, they never say, oh, this is one of many different approaches to identity. They never do that. They just impose it on you. They just assume it's a given. They just, they give you the impression that there is no other way to do it. And therefore, the way uh, our culture uh, in, imposes its identity process on us is invisible to us. We don't even know it. But let me just give you a couple of examples to try to make it a little more visible. Uh, the, the culture doesn't do this in classrooms. It does it through stories. So, for example, uh, not that long ago I watched a movie, uh, J.K. Rowling's, one of, its, one of her later books, uh, called uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And the basic plot line goes like this. It's, it, the basic narrative is about obscurials. Do you know what an obscurial is? An obscurial is a wizard who, for whatever reason, is not being allowed to um, do magic, not being allowed to express his or her magical nature. And if you're not able to uh, express your magical nature, then if you're an obscurial, then you produce an obscurus. You know what an obscurus is? It is a dark parasitical magic force that goes around eating things like a huge amoeba. Important safety tip. Don't be an obscurial. obscurial. And of course, what's going on here in the story, it doesn't ask you about it, it just assumes that that's what an identity is. You have got to express and fulfill your deepest desires and inner nature, that's what an identity is. And the whole movie assumes it, and it comes to you. Um, speaking of movies, let's stay on movies. Uh, in 1964, uh, Walt Disney made Mary Poppins, made the movie Mary Poppins. Now, over 50 years later, <clears throat> they made another Mary Poppins movie. The first Mary Poppins movie, which I actually am old enough to have gone to see, uh, was 1964, uh, was actually all about Mr. Banks. And Mr. Banks has uh, very good personal goals. He, really, he wants to become wealthy. He wants to uh, advance. Uh, he's, got a, he's got a song about it called A Man Has Dreams of Walking with Giants. But he's... He's uh, so busy in his job at the bank, Mr. Banks at the bank, he, uh, just in case you didn't get the idea, <laughs> you know, uh, in the end, he sees that he's been neglecting his family and he actually quits his job and goes off and flies kites with his children. In other words, your family is more important than your personal ambitions. But actually, if you, if you go watch the, and I won't recap, but the latest Mary Poppins, 50 years later, has moved from a traditional identity to a modern identity, and there it's all about self-discovery and self-expression. Recently, Glenn Close, uh, when she won the Golden Globe, 
uh, she actually got up and she says, you know, family is great, but you've got to, you got to put your own career first, which is exactly the opposite of the first Mary Poppins. Why? Because you've moved from a traditional identity in which you sublimate yourself to some, the, the truth and modern identity in which you find the truth inside yourself and you assert it and you live it. Uh, probably the most well-known and amazing example of where you actually see somebody move from traditional to a modern identity before your very eyes is in the movie Frozen. And of course this, the, the signature song by Elsa is Let It Go. Now here's the, how it starts. In the beginning she starts to say, don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Now what that is, is a traditional identity, but it is, by the way, being depicted in the most nasty, repressive, reductionistic, negative way possible. So you're getting a, a traditional identity. Don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you have to be. Conceal, don't feel. It's a very negative way of putting it, but that's a traditional identity, but then suddenly, I've got to see what I can do, she sings. Test the limits and breakthrough. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. She moves from a traditional identity to a modern identity right before your eyes. And in case you didn't get the picture, there's a wonderful costume change to make sure you understand. What it is. And so then out comes the hair. And it's, I mean, you remember it. And I, by the way, I like that. I like the music. I like the scene. I like the animation. But do you see what's going on? Let it go means find what's inside, don't hold it back anymore, and express it. So you've moved from a traditional to a modern in every single movie, every single day, every social media platform. Everything is saying the traditional identity is terrible, the modern identity is the way you want to go. Now I'd like to move on now and talk about the severe problems with the modern identity. And before I do that, let me tell you I'm not here to make a case for the traditional identity. I am not. Um, but I am going to now show you the severe problems with the modern. When I say I'm not, my grandfather, my, my mother's father, was born in Italy. And around 1898, when he was 18 years old, he left to come to America. You know why? Because he, would go to his, he went to his father, my great-grandfather, and said, uh, my fa our family makes pots in this little town in Italy outside of Naples, and I don't want to make pots. And they, I want to do something else. And of course, the, uh, his great-grandfather said, his father said, son, you can either be a priest, you can be a soldier, or you can make pots. That's it. Because we're a family that makes pots. And he says, well, why can't I go get another job? He said, well, nobody will hire you because they'll say, you're that family and you make pots. What if I go to another town? They won't hire you there because you say, you're not from this town, you're from that town, go back. <laughs> and you see, that's a highly stratified, highly stratified society in which you're, it's a traditional identity because how you get a sense of self and worth is you're given a social role. It is all prescribed for you. And if you fill it well, Everybody says you're wonderful, and if you don't fulfill it well, you are trashed. You're a pariah. And I'm glad my grandfather came to New York City, by the way, in 1898, and uh, came through Ellis Island, worked on, worked, and lived in Little Italy, and that whole thing. I'm glad I'm here, because he went to a place where there, it was modern enough that he could actually choose the kind of job he wanted. So I'm not all against the modern identity and all, and all for the traditional identity, but... There are severe problems with the modern identity. 
for all the problems of the traditional, the way it suffocates and the way it can lead to exploitation. Let me give you four ways. These things have been talked about quite a bit in the last few years. Uh, four ways in which the modern identity is really, really uh, severely uh, handicapped with problems. First of all is the modern identity is actually incoherent. What I mean by that is you're supposed to look inside yourself to figure out who you are. And if you really look close enough and you're honest with yourself, your deepest desires contradict. You're never going to find out who you are by looking inside. Not only, not only, of course you look inside. So for example, what if you're in a position where you say, I really love this person, I want to be with this person, but I really want this career, and if I get this person, I won't have this career. So what's the real me? Well, listen, maybe both those desires, and I would think both those desires, are very strong. Career, love, they're very strong, which means your deepest desires contradict. They contradict. And even if for a brief period of time, you actually find that a lot of your deepest desires don't seem to contradict, just, just give it a year and you're gonna change. Uh, Francis Spufford wrote this. He said, you are a being whose wants make no sense, don't harmonize, whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want not to at the very same time. You are equipped, you will finally realize, for farce or even tragedy much more than you are for happy endings. And a little more elegantly, St. Augustine in his great book, the Confessions, actually at one point says that. He had been looking deep inside to try to find himself, and he realized what he said is, myself is dispersed and scattered. My thoughts and desires do not form a coherent whole. I cannot find myself strictly by looking on the inside. And at one point, now I'm going to get back to this, he says, he says this to God, only when purified and molten by the fire of your love do I flow together. I'll get back to that. But the idea, one of the assumptions of the modern identity is you can look inside yourself and figure out who you are by looking at your deepest desires, and the ancients never believed that. But non-Western people don't believe that. It's not true. So one, number one, the modern self's incoherent. Number two, it's fragile. And the reason it is so incredibly fragile is because uh, one of the assumptions is that you cannot let anybody else tell you who you are. You can't let anybody else validate you or judge your worth. Only you can decide what is right or wrong for you, and only you, in a sense, can validate yourself. Now, that's not possible. You know why? Second reason? Because we are irreducibly relational creatures. We are irreducibly relational creatures. We cannot simply say, Everybody else in the world thinks I'm a monster, but I don't care. I'm happy. I'm, I, I, I think I'm wonderful. We're not going to be able to do that. So here's the problem. If we're irreducibly relational creatures, we need people to validate us. But if we hold on, if we hold on and say, only I can validate myself, fine. Do you realize the problem with that? The problem with that is nobody knows your flaws more than you do. Nobody else knows how far short you're falling from your standards. Which means you can't validate yourself. You desperately need other people, but you're not, no, no, only I can validate myself. So what that means is the modern identity is incredibly fragile. We are the most needy group of people. We need so much affirmation. 
Yeah, of course, traditional identity. Your society said you're, you make pots and you make pots and your father says you're okay and your mother says you're okay and the community says you're okay and you feel great. You never have any self-doubts. Modern people aren't like that. Oh, we're free, but we're free to just be constantly neurotic. We're free to always desperately need affirmation from everybody and we can never get enough. It's one of the reasons why you have the social media meltdowns you've got. You can't just disagree with people because the ideas they identify with and you're after, you, you know, you, by disagreeing with me, you are attacking my identity. Or there's a, a workaholism amongst millennials, by the way. Interesting, I just got this. Um, a 2018 study of 40,000 American, Canadian, and British college students published in the Journal of Psychological Bulletin found that millennials are suffering from multidimensional perfectionism in many areas of their lives, setting unrealistically high expectations and feeling deep hurt and pain when they fall short. It's a, there's a workaholism about it. Uh, thirdly, by the way, uh, the fragility of modern identity leads to what's called uh, addi well, addiction to sex and romance. Because you're looking, uh, Ernest Becker, uh, who, wrote, who actually, uh, in 1970s, he was an atheist, by the way, not a Christian or a believer at all. And uh, Ernest Becker wrote a book called The Denial of Death, and it's, uh, it won the Pulitzer Prize, 1970 or so. And in it, he says, now that we don't believe in God, are we free? And he actually is very realistic about the fact that now that we don't believe in God, we've got to find other things to validate us. And he actually has one fascinating place where he talks about apocalyptic romance. And he says, now that we don't have God to get our identity from, we try to get our identity from a lover. And this is what he says. It's amazing. He says, the self-glorification that we now need to achieve in our innermost being we now look for in our love partner. What is it we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want the love partner to, to rid us of our faults. We want to be justified. We want to get rid of our feeling of nothingness. We want to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption from our love partner. Needless to say, no human being can give you this. Uh, not that long ago, as a perfect ex illustration of what uh, Ernest Becker was saying, there was a New York Times article called Love Without Longing. It was a Sunday, I've, I've forgotten what section it was in, but a woman was writing and she said, I have pined insatiably and repeatedly for many people, lovers, unrequited flames. She says, romance gives me a way to know who I am. And finally says, I really want a higher power to provide that same narcotic delight one feels in the early stages of a relationship, in those rare white light hot moments when I felt a holy bliss. It's exactly what Becker is saying. But of course, remember what he just said? Needless to say, a lover cannot give you what God used to give us. Because of course the lover is, uh, is, uh, uh, is fallible and the lover then, you, you, in some way you're giving that lover too much say over you. So, in other words, uh, uh, you see all the ways in which the fragility happens? We're, we're, we desperately need someone to validate us, even though we say, no, we're validating ourselves. It doesn't work. So, here's last on this one. Freddie DeBoer, who's a guy who wrote at, uh, he's a writer, teaches writing, I think, at Brooklyn College. Not too long ago, he, he posted this. He says, why is everybody I know such a wreck? 
We have, we have this vast intellectual architecture telling us that physical attractiveness hierarchies are cruel and gendered and unfair, and that's correct. But we still care about being hot. And we judge each other about it, and our papers and our humanity seminars are entirely inadequate to stopping us doing that. We've got a political critique of the ways that notions of human worth are dictated by traditional inequalities of race and sex and class. And we have a set of political concepts like self-care that are designed to fight the negative effects of that. We've got a self-help culture that constantly counsels us that every one of us, you are a ray of brilliant, unique light that alone can shine the way into through a dark world. We've got a woke world of marketing that sells products by selling you yourself. See the gym ad down the street. Join the body acceptance movement. We've got our social media tools to craft and share perfectly idealized visions of ourselves curated to the millimeter so that we can present visions of, uh, that we want to present with digital precision, and none of it works. I see people who are the most outwardly secure and confident, who never betray a hint of doubt or guilt or remorse, who project cool at all times, who are popular, getting plaudits and positive affirmation at all times, who are academically and professionally successful, who have money and respect, and yet the flow of life reveals that inside they hate themselves. None of that stuff seems to matter. None of it could get at the core self-hatred within. And I'm wondering, is this the human condition? So the modern identity is fragile. You just cannot imagine, frankly. My grandfather, I'm glad he came. It's hard to imagine that in late 19th century Italy, anybody was thinking like that or feeling like that or having any of those kinds of problems. The modern self is fragile. The modern self is incoherent. Thirdly, the modern self is socially fragmenting. I won't go into much detail on this, but it's pretty obvious, I hope you see. If it's true that you, you cannot let anybody make you sacrifice your happiness, if it's, you have to always be true to yourself, that means you get into any relationship only as long as it's benefiting you, only as long as it's helping you be the person you want to be, only as long as it's supporting you in who you want to be. What that means is that it makes all relationships transactional. No relationship goes beyond as long as, long as I'm benefiting from it, otherwise not. It makes all relationships consumerist. This is one of the reasons why parenting, by the way, is awful for modern people. Jennifer Senior, who wrote the, uh, a, a great book on modern parenting called um, All Joy and No Fun, uh, The Paradox of Modern Parenting. And in it, she says, oh, it's right here. In it, she says, fewer and fewer people are having parenting, or having children, and here's the reason why. It's so much more traumatic for us than former generations. She says, parenting is the only non-transactional relationship left because you can't divorce your kids. And what she's saying is, because we have modern identities in which all relationships are transactional, when you actually get into parenting, it's just like, it's the only one like that, and we don't know what to do with it. Because, you see, we can always pull out of any relationship because the modern identity is transactional, which means, of course, society is fragmenting. It's the reason why, as Charles Taylor at one point says, communities are eroding, families and neighborhoods, even the polity, people are less willing to participate, to do their bit, 
They're less trusting, indeed, of any institutions or any authority of any kind. So the modern identity problems, it's incoherent, highly fragile, it's socially fragmenting, but here's where we have to finish before moving on to the final point. It doesn't actually do what it says it's doing. It's an illusion. It's an illusion to think that you can actually look inside and liberate yourself by saying, I don't care what society says, I don't care what the culture says, I don't care what you say, I'm going to be true to myself. It's an illusion that you can do that. And let me explain what I mean by that. A thousand years ago, if an Anglo-Saxon warrior was walking through England and he looked at, him, at his own heart and he noticed two strong impulses. One was aggression. He noticed that if somebody crossed him or to show disrespect, he lashed out and killed them. And the second impulse was he noticed that he had a sexual desire that was, how do we say it, it wasn't the, 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 the majority. It wasn't in the majority. So it was a sexual desire that was maybe uh, not in the majority culture, uh, a, a sexual uh, desire, and I, you know, I'm not going to give you one because there's so many of them, that wouldn't be what that culture would have considered in the norm. So how's he going to respond? He's going to look at the aggression and he's going to say, that's me. You know why? Because this was a shame and honor culture. This was a warrior culture. So he sees the aggression, he says, that's me, that's me. And he sees the sexual desire, he says, I think I better suppress that. Now, a thousand years later, some guy, some young modern guy is walking through England and he looks in his heart and he notices two things. He sees aggression. He notices that when someone crosses him or disrespects him, he lashes out and attacks. But he also notices a, um, uh, a sexual desire that would be, again, you know, not of the norm. So how does he look at it? Here's what he says. He sees the aggression. He says, that's not me. We have to suppress that. I need therapy. I need anger management. I, I got to suppress that. That's terrible. But then he sees the sexual desire. That's me. What have we learned in this thought experiment? Neither of them are just looking into their heart and saying, oh, I have to be true to myself. They've come with a moral grid. Do you see? They've got a grid from outside. It's a moral grid that they've gotten from outside and they're coming in and they are suppressing part of themselves and they're affirming part of themselves and they're not actually just being true to themselves. They're doing what their culture tells them. I mean, th just think for a second. Nobody's gonna say, oh, I like myself. You know why? I am exactly the same height as an oak tree on the Siberian plain. No, you're not. Here's what you're going to say. I like myself because, you know, I really care about the poor. Well, what have you just done there? You've brought a moral, you've brought a moral value from outside, and you've looked inside, and you've affirmed some things and suppressed some things. The fact of the matter is, modern people are doing what their culture is telling them to do. They're reading off the script. They are not finding themselves. They are every bit as much being controlled by their culture as that Anglo-Saxon guy was of his. You see the problem? In a book I read not too long ago, uh, by uh, it was on actually on um, psychiatry, and it was an academic volume. It was called Identity and Social Change, and there was this fascinating place in it where one of the essays, written by Joe Davis, by the way, Joseph E. Davis, he says, "In today's modern therapy, very often a therapist will say this to the client: You must not let anyone tell you who you are." You must not be dependent for your worth or your value on what anyone says. 
you must choose who you are and you must validate yourself. And he goes on and says, but there's deep hypocrisy in this because at that very moment, the therapist is pushing a very particular Western, highly individualistic view of identity and reality on the patient in a major way and not giving him or her any choice at all. And therefore, the therapist is doing exactly what he or she has just told the client not to let them do, not let anyone do to them. Traditional society has a different set of values. It likes things like authority, tradition, stability. Modern society has its own set of values. It likes transgression and innovation. But the fact of the matter is, both cultures are telling you how to find an identity. Here's the only difference, is at least in, in Western culture, they know that they are sublimating themselves and being controlled by their culture. But modern culture tells you you're being liberated and you're not, you're being absolutely controlled. It's an illusion. Modern self is an illusion. <laughs> it's fragile, it's incoherent, it's socially fragmenting. Is there a way forward? Yes, there is. Now here's what I want you to consider for a second. Um, when Harold Abrams in Chariots of Fire is asked by his girlfriend, why are you working so hard to uh, win the gold medal in the 1921 Olympics in the 100-yard dash? And he says very famously in that movie, which is probably, by the way, another favorite movie of mine, but anyway, we'll see. Um, uh, he says, when that gun goes off, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Now, that's an interesting way of looking at it. What he's saying is, I want to feel significant, I want to feel my life as value, I want to feel my life as worthwhile, and I am working so hard to achieve it. And in his case, he's chosen, if I can win the gold medal, then I'll feel good about myself. By the way, some of you may know, if you read, remember the movie, that afterwards there's just this huge letdown. Nevertheless, the point is, I'm trying to make is this. Traditional people who are trying to, trying to uh, uh, satisfy their parents and their, and their community, by making great pots. <laughs> and modern people who are trying to be transgressive and they're trying to be innovative and they're trying to uh, you know, be true to themselves, the fact of the matter is they're both trying to, in a sense, earn their salvation. That is to say, they're trying to existentially justify themselves. That's what Harold Abrams said. I need to justify my existence. It's a struggle to justify yourself. And it, you have to perform. I mean, in some ways, uh, it's harder in the modern self because you're not given a social role, you have to create yourself, so you, you, you set these great goals and then you work like crazy, and it's, it's an enormous amount of pressure, an enormous amount of pressure. So in the end, both the traditional and the modern identity are crushing, because what they're doing is the, the basically it's something that you have to perform. And by the way, if you're performing well this week, you have a little bit of confidence. If you're not performing well, you feel down in the dumps. Is there any other way? Yes, there is. Christianity gives you the only identity that is received and not achieved. It's received, not achieved. Christianity gives you, here's these last three things. It, it, Christian, the Christian identity is unique, not only unique in its basis, unique in its source, and unique in its shape. First of all, it's unique in its, uh, its basis. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. I'm going to say this, and it will not make sense at first, and I'll explain it, okay? This is a verse in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus sin, who knew no sin, 
that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, when it says God made Jesus on the cross sin, does that mean it made him sinful? Did God make him sinful? No. Does it mean on the cross God, Jesus became nasty and brutish and nah? No. When it says God made him sin on the cross, it means he was treated as if he'd done everything we had done. So he, he took the punishment and paid the debt. So when it says God made him sin, it means he was treated as if he'd done everything we'd done. God made him sin who knew no sin, Jesus sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what that means, and this is how that, I'm not, by the way, defending the Christian gospel right here or even explaining it. I'm showing you how it works in the area of identity. When you say, Father, forgive me and accept me, because not because of anything I've done, but what Jesus has done, at that moment, we become the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean? Just as Jesus did not become sinful, but was treated as if he'd done everything we've done. So we don't automatically become perfect. No, it just means that when you believe, God treats you as if you'd done everything Jesus has done. It's astounding. There is no other, by the way, culture or religion that gives you an identity based on that. His regard of you is, cannot go up or down depending on your performance. See, it's got a unique basis, and therefore it's also got a unique source. The traditional identity says your family tells you who you are. The modern identity says you tell you who you are. But what does the Christian identity tell you? God becomes the validator. Some years ago, I never forgot uh, a man that I really respected as a teacher and as a scholar. I just had so much respect for him. And after, uh, he knew me a little bit from a class I'd taken with him. And a couple years later, I met him at a conference and I came up to him and uh, said hello. And he said, oh, he remembered me. And he says, let's go have, uh, you know, have a soda together and sat down and affirmed me. And the reason that went through me, the reason it lifted me up, because the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. If somebody you don't respect, like, you know, praises you, okay. If somebody you incredibly respect praises you, wow. There's nothing like being adored by someone you adore. But what if it's God? According to the Bible, when you're in Jesus Christ, when you believe in Jesus Christ, how do I say it? God. The only two set of eyes, the only eyes whose opinion counts looks at you and finds you more precious than all the jewels that lie beneath the earth. To the degree that that sinks in, to that degree you have the most solid possible identity there is. Now when I said, by the way, a final shape, uh, this, there's all sorts of uniquenesses about the Christian identity, which I can't go into right now. But the, uh, the, you need to keep this in mind. If in both traditional and modern identity is based on performance, which means if you're doing okay, you kind of have confidence, but no humility, you get arrogant. If you're not doing okay, you have kind of humility, but no confidence. But you see, the, because the Christian identity is received, not achieved, and is a gift of grace, you actually don't deserve it. That's what's so wonderful about it, but you get it. It humbles you into the dust and then lifts you to the sky at the same time. And therefore, there's a boldness and a humility together that happens in a Christian identity that's just unique. And there's one, one other thing. The way you regard other people. You don't, 
you, you actually can hear people's criticism and you can ap appreciate people who are different. Whenever you're insecure in your self-worth and your identity, there's always a need to put other people down, especially people who are different from you, so you bolster yourself with self-esteem. I mean, the essence of the, uh, of the Pharisee is Luke chapter 18, where the Pharisee looks and says, oh, Father, I thank thee that I'm not like other men. And you see, the way a liberal person feels better is to say, I'm just not like those bigots over there, and the conservatives, I'm not like those Marxists over there. And, and everybody looks down at somebody, white, black, Western, non-Western, politics. Christianity humbles you and yet makes you bold, which means I don't need, I don't need to, to compare myself to other people. I don't need that anymore. And therefore there's an openness to difference. So there's the humility and the boldness, the openness to difference, we gotta stop because there's all sorts of ways in which the Christian identity is utterly unique because its basis and its source is so different. So let's just end at this point.